holiday edition of Pop Health Week is brought to you by Health Innovation Media. I'm Greg Masters. On today's Pop Health Week broadcast on Healthcare Now Radio, we conclude 2019's programming with my partner and co-host at Pop Health Week, including his increasingly popular Pop Health Minute series, Fred Goldstein, President of Accountable Health, LLC. Our very special guest today is veteran healthcare analyst, committed industry transformer, and executive vice president at Validation Institute, Brian Klepper, PhD. So let's get to it. Brian, Fred, thanks for joining me today. And uh, let's frame this conversation from the point of view of, are we there yet? And when I say that, we've all been at this quite a while. We've seen iterations upon iterations of innovation in the space from HMOs to PPOs to EPOs to PHOs to GWAAs to OWAs and now ACOs, MAs, and value-based plans, okay? We've, we've seen it all. So the question is, and none of them, some of them works for a while, you know, in their individual book of business, but the aggregate load just continued to rise. The cost of healthcare has become beyond obscene and no one seems to be managing the spend while assuring quality and access. So let me ask you, Brian, and maybe you could kick it off. Are we there yet? Greg, I think that's exactly the right question. I think that for those of us who are long in the tooth, especially Fred and me, we've become hardened over the years because we know the healthcare industry has the game rigged. They own policy. They own us lock, stock, and barrel, and patients and purchasers have essentially become pawns in the system. We've come to the point where we've come to believe that the system is essentially intractable and there's nothing we can do about it. And then over the last five years or so, you've had an explosion in value-focused healthcare organizations, organizations that are focused on managing clinical and financial risk in some new way, and they didn't appeal to to the major health plans, which make more money if it costs more money. So they appealed to other organizations that were at risk, and there are a lot of them, captive, stop-loss organizations, worksite clinic companies, Medicare Advantage plans, managed Medicaid plans, self-funded employers. And gradually, there was a little bit of uptake from the first ones in, the stronger value propositions. And then there was more and more. And now you have statewide groups. I'll talk about a couple in a minute. The one that comes to mind offhand is the state of Connecticut health plan. That group has 210,000 families, and it's developed a narrow network centers of excellence program using all the principles that we're talking about now. That's a major change. That is happening in Aetna's backyard in Hartford. It's a very exciting prospect. It's important to appreciate for that to happen, for the state of Connecticut to move to a program like that. It's a public organization. It's had a longstanding relationship with a health plan and with a broker, and it had to change those relationships, which are very difficult to do because those relationships are carefully guarded by the health plan and the broker who may have had arrangements, conventional arrangements that were more favorable to the, to the broker and the health plan than they were to the patient and the purchaser. That's a major change. The Blue Cross Association announced last week that it was creating a, a new high-performance narrow network 
that was going to be national. And that's momentous because for decades, the Blue Cross model has been an open, has been the yellow pages for the, for the network, presumably with deep discount. And now they're saying they're going to turn their back on their traditional provider partners and narrow those networks and knock a bunch of people off of their network. That's a major sea change in the way that the Blue Cross Association does business. It's important to note here that the press release on that action announced that it was the first time in 25 years that the Blue Cross Association as an entity had launched a program. So that means this is something that was undertaken with some gravity and presumably at a strategic level. The larger point is that for the first time, we're seeing large legacy healthcare organizations that we believed were intractable beginning to change the way they do business in response to the increasing traction of the value-focused market. From my perspective, it's both very exciting and it's very gratifying, and, it's, and it shows that there's promise that healthcare in America is going to change for the better. Well, just to clarify... So you're saying this is organized or sponsored by essentially the umbrella of all of the Blue Cross Blue Shield licensees at the state level? The announcement came from the Blue Cross Association in Chicago. I mean, there are, I think, 36 Blue Cross organizations, and this came from the, the mothership, which right. is the federation. Yeah, and, and for those who don't Very, know the lingo, they're often referred to as bucas. And could you define buca? Yeah, BUCAS refers to all of the major health plans, the Blues, United, Cigna, Humana, and Aetna. And it's an acronym, but it also sort of implies stodginess and, and the old way, the guys who are sticking it to us. Perfect. So I want to come back to this a little later to have you dive a little deeper as to what's happening on the benefits level with the brokers, agents, and, and advisory firms. But Fred, over back to you. First of all, anything you heard from uh, from Brian, you want to either amplify on or challenge. But same question to you. Are we there yet? Well, I, I think it's interesting. Obviously, there's some big things going on by these payers. And it'll be interesting to see, for example, with the Blues, when they talk about a narrow network, what they ultimately mean by that and how they choose to narrow that network. You can narrow it based on quality. You could narrow it based on cost. You could narrow it based on value. Or you could say you narrowed it and maybe you didn't. So I think while all of these are good moves and hopefully are the beginning of a larger flow in, in that direction, I don't yet hear the providers of care in any of the sectors screaming. And somebody's going to be screaming when costs are taken out or they see their costs taken out. I'm not sure yet that these efforts over the nearer term are going to result in big changes. And I think you'll see a fair amount of pushback from providers, particularly the larger healthcare systems, as we saw in North Carolina, where there was an effort to do this. And obviously, the, those that, that get the money push back hard enough that they didn't have to do it. So I'm hoping, I think we're early. There are some big players doing it, small piece of the market when you look at the total size of our market in healthcare. You know, there are a lot of people out there receiving a lot of funds from these plans and payers that have not yet said, I cry uncle, let's go ahead and renegotiate these deals. That's an in interesting point. And I, th I think, by the way, that you're exactly right, that, that there will be some, some attempts that are half-hearted. But the truth of it is, is that 
what's really happening at a deeper level is healthcare is for the first time in many years becoming a market. Organizations that try to put together a new structure and don't structure it to be competitive within a market, they're going to be toast and that will become readily apparent. I mean, the the litmus test will be Will an employer buy in if they know it's going to be more expensive because their approach just isn't as strong as somebody else's approach? Mm -hmm. Interesting, Brian. Do you think maybe that when this happens that, for example, you talk about the big players, the states, you know, we've seen what Walmart's now doing with COEs and some of these others and Amazon talking about these kinds of things. Do you think we bifurcate the employer market? So where we used to have, well, the private insurance pays 241% of Medicare that the large pay, the large employers get down to a lower rate and the middle and small market players don't, and we bifurcate it based on size of the company? There's going to be some of that, but I think in, in the main, you're going to see the at least the middle market, the, the group, the, the small market is something else. The, the insured market is a pawn to the uh, fully insured plans, but the the mid middle market that ha, that's made up of self-funded employers if you've got TPAs that get into the game the GPAs and EBMSs of the world the the allieds out of Chicago all of those kinds web TPA and so on very progressive ones centivo the value focused arrangements will be available to to middle market market employers just like they are to large employers that seems to be, and I think you'll see more coalitions, more collaboratives mm -hmm. to take advantage of it and to put the lives together. Is it possible we, that when you think, yeah, when ahead. you look at this and you see United and Optum, you know, obviously United's moving towards its Optum. We're a provider. We're a payvider today. Humana's announced they're going to be a small insurance company in five years and a big provider. That there's this two, there are two approaches. There's the health plans going to become providers, and there's Anthem saying, no, 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 we're going to work with providers. But could it be that the way this works is if you took out that middle layer of insurance company and you push the 85% medical loss ratio down to the providers who can, who've already shown they can make money on that, that you could take out that top 10 to 15% of costs by just removing the, provide, the payer level? Yeah. I mean, I think you, you could. I mean, I don't think I don't think that you're going to have provider-based organizations willingly taking less if the payers become provider provider-focused organizations. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But we know that organizations like Humana have become terrific medical risk managers, and they're undoubtedly going to bring that expertise to bear in a provider context if they're owners of the system. I think that's a real interesting question that you've asked, how is Anthem going to fare in this? How is Aetna going to fare in this? It also brings up the question of you've got organizations like Aetna that have merged with CVS, and presumably they think that they're going to be able to become more competitive by through that merger. It's hard to see how trying to maintain their strength and their, their very high revenues and margins within a different marketplace, how they're going to be able to, to pull that off, which again will is another vector accelerating the, the growth of the value-based market. If you have a Costco and a, a Sella Health and so on that are entering the PBM market and they're coming up with guaranteed lower pricing than 
you've been able to get through Express Scripts or CVS or Optum, and the healthcare environment is becoming more of a marketplace, doesn't that erode potentially the current regime in favor of a new regime? So, Brian, I, you know I love you to death, and I just want to say I believe the Aetna was absorbed by, or acquired by CVS <laughs> rather than, you know. As, as, in, as in like the board, right? Yeah. right. So the question is, and I want to sort of flush this out against the whole vision apparently around, as Fred mentioned, Humana becoming essentially a provider with, with, with an insurance component which means they're not exactly going back to the old days when they were a hospital system, but what they're seeing the light on, Hey, we can't just be a license. We have to be a healthcare company. So we're going to be a healthcare company who happens to have licenses. And Oh, by the way, we focus in Medicare. So we're reframing around that in the Aetna CVS example. The question becomes in Larry Merlo's vision, they're going to leverage their bricks and sticks presence in local communities and build out a primary care and then add specialty layers in to a delivery system around a traditional retail pharmacy network. So care to comment on either one of those? I mean, is this a vision that can, sure. I, I see Humana pulling it off before I see CVS pulling it off with Aetna as their license. I agree with that completely. First of all, the tell is in primary care with CVS. They can have primary care stations, you know, little tiny box offices within their within the big box stores, but they are not they are set up to be to do convenience care, to do catch as catch can care. They are not set up to do life management care that is about the management of full continuum risk using primary care as the platform. And those are two different things. To my mind, in order to compete in this new environment, you have to be appreciative of and sensitive to the management of risk, clinical risk and financial risk. And organizations that are not built like that can't do it. One of the things I think is, is are real clear is that Humana has demonstrated that it is very focused on that. And oh, by the way, they've had the highest stock price growth of any of the major health plans over the last decade. Well, they saw the holy grail and all the new startups now in the Medicare Advantage space, uh, supported by private equity. I mean, it's like les bon temps roulés again. I mean, it seems like, I don't know, everyone wants to be in the MA sector. And that brings up that interesting study that Farzad pushed out on Twitter about uh, the potential of overpayments to the MA plans because they've been upcoding their their folks and maybe that's why they're so profitable. Exactly. <laughs> is it is it a game everywhere? Right. Um, <laughs> if they can get away with it. Right. Yeah. Right. So, and that's what I'm I'm wondering. Are we just you know there, you see that phrase come up a lot when we talk about this? We're we just you know moving the chairs in the deck of the Titanic, but this Titanic will float forever. It can hit one iceberg after another and, and push them off and keep charging more. Um, Build that wall. So, exactly. So uh, I, I think all of this is fascinating, and it's, it, there's a lot of cool stuff going on. I'm wondering if it will get to the point where it's big enough that it influences the, the elephant or if it's just a bunch of mosquitoes that in their particular market have made the changes and the elephant continues to grow. 
I'm pretty convinced the elephant has already been forced to make changes to its business model. It's been forced to course correct by the value-based market. I mean, when you've got groups that have, I mean, you've got somebody like Lee Lewis, who is Mr. High Performance Organization, and he was just recruited by the Health Transformation Alliance, 7 million lives in 53 Fortune 100 companies. That's a signal, and and it's a signal that the Fortune companies are saying, we're not going to do this in the same way anymore. Right. And I think they're hearing that signal. And I understand, I believe, that that within the Health Transformation Alliance, isn't HCA a part of that group as well? Yeah, but I don't think that I don't and, think that they represent the the mainstream of of what the Health Transformation Alliance represents under somebody like Lee. Correct, but they did at a, at a conference that Greg sat in on this state that what was it, Greg? Five percent of their business is currently value based care. Yeah, risk contracting. Risk risk contracting. And, the, and as a book of business, a share is five percent nationally. I think that it'll boil down to the question of whether an employer or a, or a Medicare Advantage plan or a captive will stop allowing patients to go to an HCA hospital because it's going to be more expensive and and the outcomes might be poor. If if Absolutely. you haven't been discriminating in, in the past and all of a sudden you're in a value-based environment, you can't afford to be sloppy in how you distribute your utilization. And for those who may that, not track with you, what is a captive? What do you mean by a captive? A captive is a, a small employer collaborative that is used to manage to manage stop loss and the risk of each of the participants in the captive, the uh, reinsurance risk of each of the captives. Just, okay, it's per- just a, a mechanism to, to more effectively manage high-cost cases. Okay. And, and there's so much more bubbling underneath of the surface as to what's happening in the benefit space, but I want to come back to that. Fred, tell me, where is population health on the radar screen in terms of moving the needle forward in value-based health care, pursuing the triple aim, and just getting us to a sustainable future? What's Pop Health's role here? Well, I think ultimately population health is the framework for the delivery of this across the system. If done right, it essentially creates the tools and the the framework to move to value-based care and to generate higher clinical and and quality outcomes and reduce costs. Where it's interesting, if you think about this from a pop health perspective, this idea of Blue Cross doing a narrow network or any of the other companies doing narrow networks. If you remember, we had narrow networks back in the 90s and they got creamed. And they were creamed because the public went ballistic when they said, my doc's not in the network. So that's a, that's a classic population health issue. Unless we educate the population that, by the way, your physician's not in the network because they're not any good, then people are going to push back again and say, why, why can't I go see Dr. Mary Smith over here, who's been my physician for 20 years? And that's part of looking at this whole system from a pop health perspective, just one piece of it, which is the engagement and changing individual behavior I think there's clearly a move to it. Population health is, is coming, out, coming out better, but as David said, it's been slow. David Nash, in our interview we had on Pop Health Week, it's been slow forever, just like the move to value-based care. So we're making progress. 
I think people move off target sometimes and say, I'm going to do population health on my healthcare system when I myself would hope that they would say, I'm going to take the 30% of waste out of my healthcare system and then use that for something else instead of, will you pay me more CPT codes if I go do that? And so I'm not sure we're there yet from a population health or a value-based care perspective, but clearly there are places making progress by putting in these programs and better managing the quality of their service and the uh, members or patients they have. So, so let me ask you this question. Can you have population health at the health system or health plan level without having an all-in population-based payment structure? I believe the payment structure goes hand-in-hand with the population health program, if you want to truly move to what we're talking about from a value-based care perspective, where the value is quality and outcomes over cost. And I think there's no way to say, we're going to put in a population health program and we're going to leave our system as a fee-for-service model, because then you need to add a CPT code for every one of those services or people don't do it. Whereas if we switch the incentive, we heard from the folks at Oak Street, you can create value by doing the right thing and extract the value because you're now paid a capitated or bundled rate. So fair to say you can't have one without the other? I don't think so, no. Okay, great. So, Brian, let me come back to you. Underneath the surface, you're most closely engaged both at the provider level but deep into the health benefits, design, consulting space. What's happening in that space to facilitate the movement into value-based healthcare, and how is it changing the operations of your typical brokerage agent or uh, advisory group to their client, their employer-based clients? Tomorrow, I'm going to uh, a city in the Northeast to meet with a hospital that is a big—it's a big-name hospital, but it has mediocre leapfrog scores, and it charges 700% of Medicare. The reason they're meeting with me and the person I'm going with is because they're terrified. They know that the jig is up, and the business that they've gotten in the past because of their reputation is not going to be available to them if they're evaluated based on their actual performance number, and they want to know what the way out is. I think that's a perfect example of, of what we're seeing where the sheen of reputation over performance just isn't going to hold up anymore. There are a number of brokers that are in our circle, our larger circle, who are very focused on this. Uh, I, I ran into one yesterday whose advertisement was, if you work with me, I'm going to drop your total spend at a unit cost level by about 50%, but first-year savings are going to average between 5 and 10%. So I'm, I'm going to get better and better results over time, but they're going to be – I'll go at risk to, to make sure that you see solid progress. We've never seen anything like that before. We've never seen people making financial guarantees on healthcare performance, and that now is becoming common. To me, what we're witnessing is a foundational sea change – in these major swaths of, of healthcare, in the provider community, in the broker community, the health plan community less so because they're, they've got lots of money and they're mostly resistant to, to change as everybody else is, but they can wait it out a little longer. But they're nervous too. Florida Blue just hired a hitter who is head of 
healthcare value transformation. Nobody's had roles like that in these systems before. So to me, it's very encouraging. This is nothing like you or I have ever known in in our careers watching healthcare before. Did that answer the question? And I just want to clarify, you're talking hard dollar spend versus trend, right? Yes. People want to know, on-site clinic companies are going in and saying, I will erase your trend. You'll have zero trend. They're not saying I can, I'll, I'll reduce your, I'll reduce your current trend by 25%. They're saying I'll keep it at zero, which is let's say six or 7% a year. But more realistically, I'm seeing organizations coming out and saying, um, if you work with us, we will financially guarantee you pick a number, a 25% reduction in, in total spend. Um, and which, and if they can do that, that's because they're, they're high performers and they know that they're going to come in at 45 to 55% of reduction of, of, of total spend. So integrated musculoskeletal care out of Tallahassee will financially guarantee a 25% reduction in total musculoskeletal spend on the patients they touch. They touch being the operative statement there. So, Brian, of those enterprising employers who want to see real reductions in spend with no quality compromises or access issues, how do they vet the industry to find these advisors who are going to lead them to the Holy Grail? That's what the Validation Institute was set up to do, and the group Fred and I are part of took that over and made the processes that were in place more rigorous. But what validation is about is setting up a a team of data scientists who look at the performance claims of a healthcare vendor and say it, it either is or is not credible and it either will or will not align with the results that you're likely to get either will or will not align with what you were promised. Nobody else does that. Nobody else looks hard at the data and the data sources and the performance calculation methodologies to say what this organization claims they are doing is what they are doing or it's not. One way for an, for an employer to figure out whether who's, who's doing what in the, in the marketplace for real is to come to the Validation Institute and see who's been validated, see who's won a health value award, and so on. And so that's on the vendor side, but how about on the buy smart side? How do they protect themselves there? Comcast just issued a statement that said that they will no longer work with healthcare vendors who have not been validated by the Validation Institute. Pretty sure that Walmart is going to come out with a similar statement. So stay tuned, more to be revealed there. Fred, how about some concluding thoughts? Anything you heard from Brian or what's left? I think what's pretty clear is there are companies and organizations that are really pushing this and doing the right things and making a difference. I'm a little less sure that that's going to be a massive enough movement to to move the overall needle of of health and costs in this country, at least over the next five or more years. But I do think those companies that choose to find these unique vendors or to look at value-based care and really strong population health programs will be in better shape by doing it. What's going to provide that spark and why isn't it already here? I think that spark is from the the innovative companies that have already said, 
we're going down this road, which is the the Walmarts, the employers that are bringing in some of these vendors, whether in the musculoskeletal space, the pharmacy space, or others who have set up unique processes and programs to improve health and reduce costs. We know the opportunity exists. There's huge overutilization, inappropriate service, waste, and other issues in our healthcare system that you can get out if you put in the right programs. So more payer purchaser driven versus provider? I think at the end of the day, we're going to move to provider driven and those providers that are really good will do very well in a value-based model. And the others will continue to try to keep fee-for-service alive ad infinitum. And last thought, what about the tech, tech-driven tech new models? Are they going to work? <laughs> Some of the technology will work. Most of it is, I don't believe, has been shown to be as beneficial as people hoped. And personally, most of those companies that are playing in the tech space might want to look at getting their products validated by the Validation Institute to show that they actually did move quality and cost metrics. Well, there you have it. Thanks, Brian. And thank you, Fred, for an amazing 2019. You're a great partner and an awesome host. In 2020, Pop Health Week continues coverage of the Volume to Value journey with an encore conversation with former Secretary of Veterans Affairs, Dr. David J. Shulkin, author of the best-selling book, It Shouldn't Be This Hard to Serve Your Country, Our Broken Government, and the Plight of Veterans. For Fred Goldstein, Brian Klepper, and Healthcare Now Radio, this is Greg Masters wishing you a happy holiday season and a healthy and prosperous new year. Mm-hmm.